Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm sat here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we're joined today by our very special guest, Colleen Murphy, known to nightclubbers the world over as DJ Cosmo. Welcome, Colleen. Hello. <laughs> we'll be talking later about Lydia Lunch and featured writer Daryl Easley. But let's start with the main reason we've asked you to enter the Rocks Back Pages <laughs> cupboard. I love um, this cupboard. Which is, Mark, I feel very at home here, <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about well, specifically uh, why we've asked. Uh, uh, the 14th of... February this year is the 50th anniversary of David Mancuso's loft parties. Yes. You will be playing in New York at the 50th anniversary one party. One of the people, yeah, and one of the musicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would it be fair to say, Colleen, that you are sort of David Mancuso's representative on Earth? I think there's a few. I think there's a few people. I think one thing that's very important to say about the loft and David is that he didn't think the party was even just about him. Mm-hmm. And it's really about a sense of community. I am one of the caretakers. Right. And that's how he would speak to me about it. And Mm -hmm. and he considered himself a caretaker of the loft. Uh I mean, it was very much, he said, like, the loft is a given name. I should back up because he started doing parties in his own home at 647 Broadway. I just looked at a picture of it on Google Street View. It's still a fabulous building. Yes. Yeah, exactly. He started throwing informal parties yeah. in 1968, the year that I was born. <laughs> and, you know, and then it, he didn't really make them into proper weekly mm-hmm. parties with a contribution until February 14th, yeah. 1970. And he called it a Love Saves the Day yes. party. Yes. But then the loft was a given name because yeah. it was a loft. People are going, hey, you going over there to that loft? Yeah. To the loft, the loft, the loft. And so it finally became the name of the yeah. party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go, first of all, go back. When did you first, when did you first start really getting the music? When did you start DJing? Myself? Yeah. 1982, when I was 14. Wow. I had a, I was quite lucky. I had a radio station in my high school, right off the <laughs> library. It was 10 watts, got basically to the edges of my town, my small suburban New England town. Right. Where I was the only one that played music that wasn't top 40 mm-hmm. and that wasn't classic rock. Although we did have one Christian music special. (laughs) Not my show. And I had a radio show for four years. So the first year, I was actually playing 50s and 60s records because I was really into that. I was raiding my uncle's record collection at the time. And I had grown up. My parents didn't listen to a lot of music at home. But when we did listen to music in the car on a Sunday drive, we listened to people like Wolfman Jack still had a Mm -hmm. syndicated radio show. Mm -hmm. And another one was Artie Woo Woo Ginsburg. (laughs) Artie Woo Woo Ginsburg. (laughs) And it was a syndicated show. And it was all like all those oldie songs. Mm -hmm. And I just knew them inside and out. And then my uncle lived down the street from me, and I used to go raid his record collection because I I was given a GE Trimline record player, portable record player, hand me down when I was about 12. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started getting properly into albums. The first right. one was Moody Blues, Days of Future Past. That was my first obsession, actually, because it, it was a proper album. Well, you know, I'm, I knew I'm, Nights in White yeah, Satin, and then yeah, I sure. played the birth, a whole album. And so I was that's like, the oh birth God. of classic album it Sundays. Really right in my bedroom <laughs> at the age of 12. And I still, I never gave it back to my uncle. But then um, the following year, so my first year in high school, freshman year, I had that oldie show. So the next year, I started to do more of an expansive kind of new wave mm-hmm. uh, show. So I had was playing stuff like Elvis Costello, a lot of Elena Lovage, B-52s, right. mm-hmm. a little bit of hardcore stuff, too, mm-hmm. that was, was kind of coming out. 
I was really into Black Flag and the Avengers and all sorts of like <laughs> the DC scene. And then the following year, I had a show with my friend Mary Caruso called Punk, Funk and Junk. <laughs> yeah. And that's where the name Cosmo was born because oh. she became Remix and I became Cosmo because there was a band, an electro band called Nucleus. And they had their DJ's name was Cosmo. And they said, yo, Cosmo, give me a beat. We had sweatshirts that we made with our names on the back. We rock around <laughs> like, you know, our New England high school, you know, and no one else like really was into that music. So, And then my final year, I had a show called Strawberry Alarm Clock because mm-hmm. I was still into 60s stuff. There was a the whole kind of Paisley pop thing that was right. going on. Yep. And I was working at a record shop. Uh, it was this chain store at that time called Strawberries. Mm-hmm. And I, because I had a show in the morning, I worked at Strawberries. It was called <laughs> Strawberry Alarm Clock. And that was a very eclectic show. Right. I could go from Strawberry Alarm Clock to Chardonnay to Black Flag to, I mean, it was just whatever Fantastic. my fancy was. So, yeah, I think so, all 10 listeners loved so, it. So know. how did you ease <laughs> from there to sort of disco and kind of R&B and well it was, a, it was a big trajectory I mean having said that my first gig that I went to was the Funk Fest in Providence Rhode Island mm-hmm. it was Gap Band One Way Grandmaster Melly Mel and Bar Kays. fantastic and so I was also going to a few kind of electro clubs in Roxbury mm-hmm. I think my Mom knows this. So, Mom, if you're listening, <laughs> you have to find out yeah. sooner or later. You have to find out sooner or later. You know, I was into, of course, Prince, you know, and slept out for tickets for the Purple Rain tour. Right. She did find out about that later. She saw it on the news and she said, So that's where Colleen is tonight in the parking lot in Worcester, Massachusetts. So, but that was still, you know, and luckily in Boston, because I was outside Boston. We had great radio in Boston right. because we had college radio stations. Yeah, yeah. Actually, also Brown Station, too, in Providence had a really good funk show as well. Right. And we had Kiss 108 with Sonny Joe White. Mm. So it was a commercial kind of, I hate saying the word black music because I just don't think music has a color, but I'm just going to do it for simplicity's yeah. sake right now. And I used to listen to his show, too. So I was quite eclectic in sure, my taste. Sure. But I wouldn't say that wasn't the music I was collecting. Mm-hmm. And it really was quite a trajectory because I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. When did you move to New York? 1986. 86, okay. And I went to NYU. And the reason I picked NYU is I had to get out of Boston. <laughs> uh, it had one of the best college radio stations in the country. And I knew that's what I wanted to mm-hmm. do. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. And somehow we scrambled together loans and scholarships and I got there. Because I was the first kid in my family to go to university. It wasn't expected of me. Sure. And I went in the first week to WNYU station, said, hi, I want to work here. Mm. And that, they became my, it was my family. It was my home right Fantastic. there. And I ended up becoming program director. Mm. And I did a whole bunch of radio shows there, including the Anchor Show, which was the new afternoon show, which is a three and a half hour drive time show where we played everything from like Nick Cave to all the, the Belgian stuff that was coming out, yeah. you know, to the cold wave stuff to, you know, to the 4AD Cocteau Twins and Dead Can Dance to, you know, to punk to everything. So that was great. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, I produced syndicated radio shows where yeah. I interviewed a lot of these bands, probably hundreds of bands, really, that was syndicated to, I think, 200 radio stations wow. across the country, college radio stations. It was called Music View. And I would interview everyone, even like, you know, I was a huge Butthole Surfers fan at that time. I got to interview Paul Leary. I'd seen them like 15 times. Um, and I mean, Nick Cave, loads of people. I, I mean, kind of, and then all the Brit, British stuff, too, because I had always been an Anglophile, because growing up, 
I was really into New Order and Joy yeah, Division yeah. and The Smiths and seeing all these bands of The Cure. In fact, I danced on stage at one of the Smiths' legendary gigs in Boston. <laughs> um, so I was really an, 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 an Anglophile as well. So I was interviewing loads of bands like The Verve and Oasis and, you know, all these bands as well. But we'll at the we'll, same time, I started going to David's parties. We'll probably find Jim Sullivan's review of that show where she danced on the stage and hopefully be some I looked, it up. I looked it up before because it was less it's amazing the one thing that's amazing about the internet is you can find old set lists I started listening to my first Grateful Dead show over and over last week someone turned me on to a site like March 22nd 1987 <laughs> the opening of, of the spring tour in Virginia Beach wow. started listening to that and you can find old track lists and I could I found a photo of the butthole surfer show at the channel that I went to I mean it's amazing what you can find so I did research and the Smith that that Smith's gig was quite a big one yeah. actually it was quite a famous yeah. Smith's gig I think a lot of these quote we call them alternative bands now or college radio bands love playing in boston yeah. because we had so many colleges sure. they, they had great attendance yeah, yeah. would be like boston and new york would be some of their best shows yes. in la Absolutely. you know mm. so i interrupted you and mm. you were starting to go clubbing as well you was i was going i mean i was hanging out in new york i was mainly going to live shows mm-hmm. i was djing a bit at cbgb's record canteen mm-hmm. i had played on the roof of mars club i mean because of wnyu but my friend Adam Goldstone was bringing me out to various clubs around New York, including some of the, the early house clubs like Tracks. And I always had a good time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always had a really nice time, but it wasn't life changing. Right. It wasn't like, I must buy these records and play these records and come to this place every week. And my last semester at, at NYU, I had, I had just been living in Japan, actually, the, the semester before I was a radio DJ mm-hmm. in Japan. And I came back to New York, finished my last semester. And, and Adam had brought me and my then boyfriend to a place called The Choice, which was on 3rd Street between mm-hmm. Avenues B and C. It was a one-off party. I believe Larry LeVan was playing. Right. And now I knew nothing about this kind of music, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't have known. He probably told me. It was, sadly, Adam's he's, he's passed, sadly. But he had a huge impact on my life because he brought me to the choice. And then I think I moved to San Francisco and traveled Central America, came back, produced mm-hmm. these syndicated radio shows and, and rekindled my friendship with Adam. Or, you know, we started hanging out again. And he said, oh, I want to bring you to this party. This must have been like 91 or 92. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's no record of any of this stuff, which is quite beautiful, sure. isn't it? We, didn't, we don't have photos and like, you know, <laughs> the, things. We didn't record everything. We just lived. Mm. And it was the same space he had taken me to before as the choice. And I, you know, it was this old converted theater on Third Street between Avenues B and C. And it was still a rough neighborhood. Yeah, I, had, sure. I had lived in that neighborhood on 9th between B and C. In fact, that's where I lived when we went to the choice that time. So it was fine for me. And I looked like a street urchin anyway, so I had no <laughs> money. No one was ever going to bother me. <laughs> and knock on the door. Someone lets you in. Okay, we pay nine ninety nine. You know, you give you a ten dollar note. They give you a, a cent back, <laughs> <laughs> and then you go through the next set of doors and you check your coat for free. It was amazing. I was like, oh, okay. And I looked over and it was this huge room that had been. It was a former theater, so it had very high ceilings, mm-hmm. but the floor had all been leveled out. Right, and it had these stacks these huge speaker stacks all around the dance floor. Now I know they were clip shorts. Right. I didn't know what they were at right, the time. Right, right. And then on one wall, the back wall, there was a, a kitchen set up. And then there's the musical hosting area. I'm not going to say the word DJ booth because mm-hmm. David would zap me. 
from, from musical heaven right now if I said that. But it's a place where the turntables were. Right. Behind the turntables was this man. I was probably 24 at the time, and he would have been 48 then, so mm-hmm. 24 years apart, playing records very quietly, very introspectively, very beautifully, mm-hmm. very musically. And this, the music I heard just blew me away because right. I was really into psychedelics and psychedelic records. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And I had had a radio I knew show. We, I knew we had something in common. Yeah. <laughs> I had had a radio show in the late 80s called Plastic Tales from the Marshmallow Dimension. I kid you not. <laughs> I chose that name. It used to be Mod Monday, and then I was like, no, I always get into the long form, like proggy and also just psychedelic mm-hmm. and garage rock stuff. So I was really into that kind of, those records that really took you on a journey. I always had been, I mean, quite mm-hmm. honestly. If you, <laughs> the Days of Future Past is my favorite, <laughs> first, my first favorite album. That kind of just about sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> and the music that he was playing was dance music that evoked the same kind of feelings right. that these other records yeah, did. Yeah. It wasn't just functional music mm-hmm. and i'm not saying the house music is functional music because it's not but it can be yeah 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 there are some that are and some that aren't mm-hmm. just, just like yeah, anything sure. like yeah, rock music or whatever yeah yeah but this his musical selection of course he's picking the best best records, mm-hmm. records that have real proper life energy, that, that that are wonderful from beginning to end, that are sonically well-produced as well, so the, the sound system is shining, mm-hmm. and, and the music is really shining because of the sound system, a, a real symbiotic relationship yeah, yeah. there. And I was actually, I bumped into a guy that I, I used to intern at Rockpool, and one of our reporting DJs mm-hmm. happened to be there, John Hall, and he remembered me, and we, I, I kept asking him, what's this record? What's this record? What's this record? <laughs> And I finally started doing some work with him, you know, helping him clean out his record collection. He was a record dealer. Right. And he had some records stored at David's. He had some records stored at Downstracks, where I later mm-hmm. later worked, where John was working at the time. And after my, you know, producing syndicated radio shows all day and interviewing bands like Oasis, I'd go and I'd like, be sorting through John's records and him and Joe Clausell would be turning me on to records because I would work for records. And that's kind of how I started that record right. collection and I yeah. started a radio show called yeah. Soul School back on WNYU because mm-hmm. they asked me back they actually needed DJs strangely <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how that happened but that's that that's kind of fast forwarding quite a bit going back to that experience mm-hmm. that day that particular night it was really life changing for me sure I mean it was someone's home yeah. at five in the morning this was really trippy at five in the morning I was vegetarian a vegetarian buffet is laid out and I look up, and it's like the woman who was cooking. I later found out, I think she'd been cooking like for decades for David. I used to work with her when I was waiting tables <laughs> in, uh, at a little cafe. I think it was called Home Sweet Home or something in Greenwich Village in the 80s. So it's just really strange, like all these weird, kind of weird connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just blown away. Yeah, yeah. I started going back every week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so through that process, you got to know David, mm-hmm. eventually started hosting Well, basically, I wanted him to come up on my radio show Mm -hmm. because he was such an inspiration to me. And we had kind of exchanged a few words, but I was, you know, someone's playing records. I'm not running up. and I think we had shared a taxi once because 
he used to go back up to Mount Tremper. He had a house up there. Mm-hmm. And so he'd go there for half the week. So he's originally from Utica, New York, and then moved to New York City in his, I believe, late teens. Mm-hmm. But he had a place up there. And so that's why the, the, the song City Country City by War was so important that's to really him as well. So he'd spend half the week up there. Right. And I lived on 30th between 8th and 9th by this time. And I would just sometimes jump in the cab on his yeah, way yeah. up to the Port Authority. But I really wanted him to to come to my radio show. But he had never played records outside of his own home, you know. So my friend John Hall made a, a more formal introduction. And <laughs> he said, uh, let's see, see me hanging around. And he said, let's go, let's go, let's go out. Let's go out for a drink. Mm-hmm. So he and I went out. And we started talking about musical synchronicity. And music for me has always been that way i'll be thinking about something and then it appears in a record shop or whatever yeah, yeah. i mean like just that kind of yeah. connection and even when i was doing the radio i'd have something queued up not even playing yet and someone would call up and request oh, that song that, that, that i have queued yes. up yeah and similarly if i was on the dance floor at david's loft i would think oh it'd be great if you played this song next and he would you know <laughs> so we talked about that and there was already a connection yeah, yeah, yeah. so he came up to my radio show never spoke just chose the records because he was too shy <laughs> and then i don't know how many weeks later or months but he then said hey could you do you want to play some records with me and i was like uh yeah and uh, I think I listened to my entire record collection and I played four records <laughs> but you have no headphones Right. Because of the, the, you know, here he was. I had heard about these famed Quetsu cartridges that cost like $2,000 each. I mean, now they're $6,000 each, these particular ones. But, and here is David asking me to, like, trusting me to even handle yes. the sound system yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. And also, the dancers, because these are the cream of the crop dancers of New York. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that really know this music uh-huh. inside and yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's trusting me with all of this. And Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I asked him years later, I asked him actually just before he stopped traveling. He's in our back garden. He, he used to come to our house like four times a year yeah. when we were doing the Lucky Cloud parties. And I said, you know, I think back now, now that I know all this stuff about audio equipment, and high-end audio and moving coil cartridges. And I knew nothing back then. Mm-hmm. So that, why did he even trust me to even handle the equipment yeah. or, or even with the dancers? And he said, it starts with a vibe long before one hits the turntable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it came up, you know, then I was playing little sets if he needed a break. Sure. Or a few, and I had even filling in for him on yeah. occasion. If he, you know, <laughs> so the party was every week, so... And then, you know, it was a really difficult time for David in the 90s. He mm. he thought he had bought that building on mm-hmm. East 3rd Street through a lawyer. And he, it was the first time he was actually going to own his own building. Right. You know, and he was just, you know, he'd been, gentrification had kind of gotten him out of Soho. All these artists wanted to make money with real estate. Yes. They didn't want all these black people and gay people hanging around Absolutely, outside. Absolutely, yeah. He knew the end was near. And right. so he purchased this building on 3rd Street, had the work done. But he had purchased it through a lawyer, and he gave that lawyer power of attorney. And so by the time, in the 90s, you know, by the time I'm meeting him and kind of hanging out with him and hanging out with him during the week and playing records at a, at a group he called the Music Pool, and just starting my friendship with him, things were rough. 
I mean, they were bad. Mm-hmm. And he finds out that, you know, he doesn't own the building. Oh, God. And now we're starting, the, this is a, starting the time of gentrification mm-hmm. in the East Village as well. So he, you know, he was moving to progressively smaller spaces. Mm-hmm. The next one was Avenue A and then Avenue B. Mm-hmm. We were doing fundraising parties. He had lost a lot of his crowd that used to go to the famous Prince Street venue, which was the big one. Right. You could hold 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. Because he was... In Alphabet City, yeah, it was, yeah. you know, it was a heroin area. Yes, it was rough, uh, you know, it was really rough, and he lost a lot of people. Other people had moved on and mm-hmm. grown up, apparently, and uh, you know, <laughs> had kids and moved to the suburbs, and maybe weren't around as much either. But a lot of people just didn't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. And so then he goes to these progressively smaller venues, where then he's now renting against. So you're subject to the landlord. You're subject to gentrification. You're subject to noise. Although it was never that noisy, because mm. he always kept it at a good level. But I just found this file of all these, you know, kind of, you know, fundraising invitations yeah. that he would do. And, and yeah, it was an intense, intense sure, time for sure. him. And it didn't look like a lot of people just kind of left him, in, you know, and there were really a core group of people that were really, including myself, that were really trying to help him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's worth sort of going back a bit to sort of talk about the importance of the loft it, it, itself. I mean, a lot of people would say that that is disco ground zero. Yeah. Uh, there's some truth in that. There's, there's a broader conversation around to be had mm. about that. What is absolutely certain is just about every single key DJ of the disco period and afterwards from New York had experienced the mm-hmm. loft, the Larry Levans of this world. Frankie the, Knuckles, Tony, Tony Humphreys, Humphreys yes. Morales, everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. So their introduction to this sort of way of playing dance music was via David mm. Mancuso, which makes him an incredibly important person. And yet, of course, yeah. it's so unusual as well. Totally Reading, unusual. Reading, so the, the, the three pieces that we're featuring this week, one is a, a shortish piece by Frank Broughton, mm. and one is a longer piece by Greg Wilson. Mm. You you just sort of think, for someone so influential mm-hmm. on the path of dance music through the 70s, he was never a typical kind of no. DJ. Really, he was a hippie, was he? and he, he wasn't was a, a DJ. He was he, a musical he host. He kind of yeah. hung out with Timothy Leary, mm-hmm. done a lot of psychedelics, mm-hmm. and had this very, you know, spiritual attitude towards playing records yeah. in yeah, yeah. that context. That, yeah. That's exactly, I think, one of the reasons I got so turned on as well, because I had just studied Zen Buddhism in Japan, you know, and I was really open-minded <laughs> to all this stuff. But he didn't start these parties you know, to become a DJ. No. Or, I mean, that, that didn't really exist. You had no. Francis Grasso at the Sanctuary. Yes. Yeah. And then this is the late 60s yes, as well. Yeah, and yeah. people are turning up to Davis Loft as his home without making any financial contribution mm-hmm. around the same time. And these were venues that people went to purely to dance. Yeah. Because you have to remember discotheques at this time mm. were still places where people had to go and wear a suit. That's it was right. a little dance floor at well, a based restaurant. On, based on the French model. Exactly. Based on the French yeah. model. It was all about being seen. Yeah. You might have a little boogie, but mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah. about, I'm going to go and lose my head yeah, just yeah. dancing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and like maybe almost taking that kind of ethos of the Grateful Dead, <laughs> you know, where you go and lose your head and just dance to the Grateful Dead. It's like taking that to a dance floor of pre recorded music. Yeah, yeah. So no one was really doing this. So this is 
this is the foundation yeah. of what we now call club culture yeah, yes, or, or whatever. Although his wasn't a club, it was a party. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, you know, started the financial contributions because he didn't want to have to work anymore. People are coming to his house. It was 1970. He inaugurates these parties based on the Harlem rent parties in the 1920s mm-hmm. because, you know, African-Americans weren't allowed to go to so many places. So mm-hmm. they threw their own parties. That's right. Called rent parties that could pay for their rent. Yep, and, yep. and that's what he was trying to do. Uh, you know, I'll just see if I can pay my rent this yeah, yeah. way. And he was able to. So he didn't start it to, you know, become, become a, a, superstar, D, to become a superstar. He yeah. actually started it for a sense of community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was really into social progress mm-hmm. and social inclusivity. Kind of these key words that we see yeah. today. He was doing this yeah. in the late yeah. 1960s yeah. and 1970s. Blacks, gays, whites, everyone on the dance floor in a kind of union, community of the dance floor. Absolutely. And I think even more importantly, economic parity. I find that's where we have the biggest divisions, is these so-called economic class Mm -hmm. divisions, Mm -hmm. almost more than race and sexual preference and gender. And that still goes to this day, which I I find so liberating. You know, you could have all different types of people from all different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And he was really into promoting that kind of social evolution in a way where people self-police themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was it was members, and you could bring friends, a certain number of friends, but the membership wasn't paid for. Right. And this is what he really had a problem with, mm-hmm. with like the Paradise Garage, right. even though he was friends with Larry, and yeah, Larry yeah, was yeah, kind of a, sure. a protege of his. He didn't like the fact that he had started this members thing just because he had to make it a private party mm-hmm. so people were able to do what they wanted to yeah, do. Yeah. He didn't sell alcohol. And it was a financial um, contribution. So it was, it was a an punch invitation. Laced with LSD, I seem yeah, to remember. Yeah, it was free though. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to have to move on very, very shortly. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say first of all that Colleen is that you are my absolute favorite DJ. Oh, I mean, thank be, you. I came to parties very late in life. I was mm. a middle-aged raver. But the very first time I met you, you were doing a back-to-back with Bill Brewster at the upstairs room in Fabric. Oh wow! You won't yeah. remember this and. There's nothing snottier than the DJ booth fabric. There'd be a lot of people doing mm. coke and it was mm. all very arrogant and so on and so forth. She was picking up a record from her bag and she walked towards the turntables and turned around and looked at me and just beamed at me. Mm. <laughs> and it was like the first time, the first act of generosity I'd ever felt in the DJ booth fabric. And I used oh to go quite gosh. regularly along oh, the bill. Wow. And so that had a quite quite an impression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's been, a, I've been very lucky to have seen this one play yeah. a number of and times. And you've also been to classic album Sundays. Oh, I, I, I've, only, I've only been to one yeah. because it's Sundays and that's when I look after my daughter. Which one did he come to? Oh, I, I can't remember. remember what it was. I didn't come to the It wasn't Days of Future Past. No. I guess not. <laughs> I know. It wasn't in a silent way because that's one no, of your favourite No, no, no I, I'd have loved to come to that, that and I'd love to come one. to the Electric Lady so that's Land. that's ten years well. old as well, isn't it? Ten years this year? Yeah, That's amazing. I really can't believe it. We're kind of marking that anniversary too. I know, we're going to have to do something big. Uh, and that you you, and others, like the Lucky Cloud guys, that mm. have introduced this country, the culture of the Clipshaw speaker, the mm. monoblock, valve amplifiers, mm-hmm. not even DJ turntables sometimes, things like Torrens, proper hi-fi turntables and all that. Mm. And I think we've all learnt that the listening experience can be so much better than the standard club, you know, sure. banging noise. Change of mind. Maybe. 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 Maybe
skip on, haven't we? Skip. Time is hurtling by. Fantastic. Time does tend to hurtle by when we're recording our podcast. But I mean, that was fantastic. Really loved hearing you talk about your your journey. And have a fabulous time on the fourteenth. The party you're playing on the fourteenth. I will. I will. Where? Actually, the party itself is going to be on the sixteenth. I'm actually going to do a Cosmodelica night on the fourteenth at Public Records, which is a nice high five. But the party because it's we host them on a Sunday now. Of course, yes. It's going to be the sixteenth. Right. It's, it's private, so. <laughs> Sorry, where, where in New York is the event on the sixteenth? It's in the I mean, East Village. In the East Village, yeah. Great, so it's on the sixteenth. Well, that's wonderful. So free on the homepage this week are two pieces about David Mancuso and also a piece about you. Oh, really? Yes, uh, written by, by whom? Lulu Levay. Oh great, my the gosh, name, that was Lulu the first LeVay. article written about was me it? here was when I first moved one? over. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the likes that we have it on RBP. It oh is from oh 1999. Yeah, I moved been... here February. I moved here the day after. You only just moved. I think it says that. 21 years ago, and I, then yeah. my last party that I played at was I played at David's. 29th anniversary and moved here the next day. Wow. It is, the intro is, the Stanford <laughs> says, she was our mainstay of New York nightlife until Mayor Giuliani sent in the cops. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Mayor Giuliani, see, I yeah. was right. I was you, right about him, wasn't You were I? right then. You're yes. even more right now. Exactly. Oh, my. Oh, my. Exactly. <laughs> um, also free on the homepage are three pieces by the aforementioned Daryl Easley, who's great book about chic everybody dance is actually being reissued this week in in revised form chic and the politics of disco is the yeah so it all oh, kind yeah. of I mean, knits together i've been through niall a couple of times and i loved how he he considered his music more art pop and those early chic covers are modeled on roxy music covers they interesting they, that whole yeah. chic element was yeah, very yeah. influenced by Roxy, mm, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, they, they were so fascinating. One of the three pieces, actually, that I've chosen is a piece about a record they did with Norma Jean Wright, her oh, solo yeah. record on, of all labels, Bearsville. Very, it was very the only weird. disco <laughs> record that Albert Grossman ever put his name mm-hmm. to. But it does include the fabulous anthem Saturday, which I is in one of Sheik's greatest works. <laughs> and I learned uh, w- reading Daryl's piece that actually Saturday was a track that they were playing long before Sheik was born. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. And, and then they kind of slightly tweaked it for Norma Jean, who was mm. the original yes. Sheik yes. singer. And uh, it's a, just a, it's one of my absolute favourite disco records. Now it's um, in my head. Yes, it's just, <laughs> it is one of those sort of transcendental, euphoric disco tracks that also got a, it's got a kind of undertow of melancholy about it, it, it does. which is what Sheik has, I think. But it's also, I think, the African-American experience at that time, yeah. too. So a lot of people are working these mm-hmm. crap jobs yeah. all mm-hmm. week. And maybe not just African-Americans either, but, yeah. you know, and then the, on the weekend is when they can really let loose and be themselves. Yeah. I just I mean, they were such great lyricists. Mm, from they were. Right? Uh, yeah, the lyric that... of Saturdays is, yeah. is just gorgeous. So there's that. And then also a very long piece attempting to d- defend, to some degree, Elvis Presley, the actor. That's a tough, a tough mission. He actually quotes this, this hilarious thing from Elvis in 63. I've had intellectuals tell me that I've got to progress as an actor and explore new horizons. 
I'd like to progress, but I'm smart enough to realize you can't bite off more than you can chew in this racket. <laughs> you can't go beyond your limitations, especially if you're managed by Colonel Tom oh Parker. Um, it's very, I love the idea of intellectuals telling Elvis that he needs to do something a bit artier. <laughs> hey, Elvis, yeah. Elvis stop, yeah. stop reading Kai to cinema. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, Goddard wants to work with you. So that's that's a great little piece. Well, He's, Goddard did, did God I did work with the Rolling Stones, so you know it was not a massively. No, that is, is the worst Goddard movie of the lot. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, indeed. And then just briefly, this is this is a bit of a lateral thinking on my part. Daryl sleeve notes for a full compilation called 50,000 Fall Fans Can't Be Wrong." That's fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Which is which is, which is a great. Yeah. It's a it's a great guide to yeah. the best full tracks between '78 and 2003. So we love Daryl. Daryl's been on RBP for for a number of years. He's absolutely delightful, wonderful writer. So enjoy those two. Too. And at this point, Colleen, we start talking about what isn't free on Rockstar Pages. <laughs> and Mark will tell us about this week's audio interview. Yeah, it's Martin Aston interviewing the fabulous Lydia Lunch in the winter of 89. She's actually in England doing a spoken word tour. So the, most of the interview is actually essentially about the difference between singing and spoken word and so on and so forth. I mean, she's ranting. I mean, even in the interview. I mean, mm. Aston's obviously kind of pinned back in his seat by her as she, she kind of, like, bellows away. She talks about censorship, about having her films destroyed. Mm. She's very contentious. She, I mean, she, very interestingly, she talks about women encouraging their own abuse, and she talks about how she was abused herself by her father mm. and how therapy has been useful to her. And she talks about being on the margins and not caring that she's on the margins and not caring that she's not in the mainstream. We'll listen to a clip about exactly that now. I don't want to go into the mainstream in order to... I don't care about subverting, perverting, corrupting. It doesn't... I don't care. All I need is enough to get by. I have such a moderate lifestyle and I just need to be able to escape from New York when I need to escape. And that's it. I don't really care. The money, I don't want the trap. The more money you have, the more you spend, the more taxes you have to pay. What does that matter? What does that mean? I like to move every few years. I can't get fill the trunks, the U-Hauls, ship it out. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Marginal? Yeah, I mean, margin. I'd like to think I was not even in the ballpark, you know. I, I'm so far off the mark, I'm on the next stratosphere. Every man's madness, and I'm hurling the core. There's knives in my drain, empty splints in my brain. Yeah, I mean, interesting. that sort of keys into what we're talking about, about David Mancuso. Because in a way, he had no desire to be in the mainstream. And and he had the same problems that she has, that you just got to make enough money just to sort of get, go from yeah, one place to the next. absolutely. She talks about spoken word, particularly in relation to people like Henry Rollins, who does oh, done all yeah. spoken word stuff. And Karen Finley, who you mentioned yes. um, when we, before we started the podcast. She says that Karen Finley has also made records. She says she really shouldn't. That she's terrible. I keep telling her not yeah. to. I keep, I keep <laughs> telling her not to. Yeah. She talks to some extent about her music and about how she actually it was writing lyrics which led her to music, not the other way around. She talks about hating political music. You know, basically people can't... You, you can't join the two things together. And actually, I think we broadly agree with the very, very few good, effective political songs. I mean, you can count Morris in the finger of one hand. 
She talks a lot about her audiences and the nature of the conflict, especially as a spoken word artist, the conflict that she, she'd run into. She talks about feminism and pornography, all kinds of stuff. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's over an hour, but she packs a lot in, doesn't she? Oh, yeah, she does. She reminded me more than anyone of Madonna, funnily enough, in the way she talks. She's just, she's got no self-doubt. She's absolutely kind of relentless yeah, yeah. in her, in her kind of ideas and i mean very very impressive i mean i knew lydia a bit back in the days of nick cave and the birthday mm. party who you mentioned earlier lydia was over here a lot in that era and collaborating with members of the birthday party and in fact that's the reason for the audio is that she's in town here in london next week taking part in an evening at the royal festival hall to celebrate the life and music of roland howard of the oh, birthday yeah. party i mean i knew roland really well and i, I he would be very tickled to think that the Royal Festival Hall was hosting. <laughs> you know, it's like all those guys were like back then. It was a million miles away oh from the gosh, Royal Festival yeah. Hall. But Lydia was around, and I mean, I was always really impressed by Lydia. I got along with her. She she was sort of kept this whole insane drug craze scene at arm's length. You know, she didn't do heroin she didn't do those drugs she always seemed to be mm -hmm. pretty together She's to me very together, yeah. yeah very together mm -hmm. and you know i never knew quite what to make of her and i can't say i sort of loved all her work but i think Clearly, she's been a very important yeah. force. Yeah. It's really inspiring to to me, too. Like, in the 1980s, when I moved to New York City, mm -hmm. there were places like the gas station. Richard Kern showed his films there. Mm -hmm. And I saw, and I think Lydia was in one of them. And then also... Lydia, I saw Lydia perform at this place. I think it was called Sybarite or something. It was definitely on the margins of Manhattan at that time, the meatpacking district. And her and Karen Finley, I remember catching both of them. Mm -hmm. And they were just very inspiring uh, to young women. Yes. I mean, just this fact that they really didn't care what people thought of them. They were really pushing forward in terms of feminism, mm. I think, in a very much more unorthodox way yes like maybe yes you know employing different kind of pornographic mm -hmm. kind of angles that other feminists from yesteryear may have thought was was unfeminist well, she, so they were she goes into that to some extent yeah. in this mm -hmm. interview she talks about because there's that group women against pornography which is andrew dwork and people like that mm. and how she was constantly getting to arouse with them yeah you know that, that, that you're right her feminism was Powerful but unorthodox yes. in that sort of sense. She's very brave. I mean, she's never been in it to kind of, you know, win friends and influence. <laughs> <laughs> and she's pretty candid about that in this audio. But she doesn't really care whether feminists like her and she doesn't really care whether misogynists like mm. her, you know. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't even really care if audiences don't like her. But, Anybody but... <laughs> likes her. Yeah, I mean, I always did feel that with her. And yeah. I mean, I kind of probably felt that night. So that it, was, it was actually Lester Bangs who introduced me to to the plangent sounds of Teenage Jesus and the oh, Jerks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. yeah. Plangent The only time I went to his scuzzy apartment on 6th Avenue and he just essentially sort of regaled me with, with tales of no wave bands and played all these oh virtually unlistenable records. But he was just so infatuated with, with Lydia and, you know, Mars and DNA and James Chance and that whole scene mm. yeah, that yeah. was just so, so vibrant then. Oh, 
if you called No Way Vibrant. <laughs> I, kind of, I mean, Lydia is just is one of the great interviews in many ways. I mean, yeah. the early interviews that we have on the site yeah. from like New York Rocker. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's just she's brilliant yeah. to read. She's also um, made some very listenable, terrific records. Well, Queen, Queen of, of Siam, Siam, we love. Queen of Siam, which, which, which criminally record. is not on Spotify. Well, yeah, I, don't I mean, know it was. Someone's removed it. It was. Um, maybe, maybe Michael Zilker of Z. But, no, she's, she's an endearingly fascinating person, you know, and, and I really loved the No Wave stuff because mm. I really didn't much like English post-punk. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the idea of English post-punk, and let's mention at this point the death of Andy Gill last week. Yeah, um, of course. Gang of Four. I, a gang of four were a band. I always liked the idea of far more than the actual reality of listening mm. to them. I mean, he, I thought he was a fantastic guitar player. He kind of he was the ultimate kind of post-punk guitar yeah, player, yeah. wasn't he? Because because there was funk in there, but yeah. in this very kind of angry, yeah. atonal yeah. sort of I, way. I just struggled to get past John King's kind of polemical vocals. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I'm talking about political music. Yeah, yeah. You know, that I struggled with with Gang of Four. But he was a great guitar player. But I, yes, so English post-punk to some extent drove mm. into the arms of No Wave mm. and also into the arms of black music, and mm. which I'd always loved. But mm. suddenly listening to kind of, you know, Eddie Kendricks or something was a lot more promising than listening to sort of moaning English people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I better get on with what's going to the library, hadn't I? Absolutely. Should I? I go on. Permission granted. Go on. <laughs> well, first thing is... Uh, Peter Jones transcribes it, but it's actually presented as Georgie Fame chats with Mick Jagger for Record Mirror on 6th of November 65. And they're basically talking about the English R&B scene. Jagger comes up with some really odd stuff, as usual. He says, at the moment, there's too much reliance placed on American stars. You get sick of the scene where people seem to think that a coloured American R&B artist is better than a British one simply because he is a coloured American. Ours are just as good. Just compare Chris Farlow's version of In the Midnight Hour with Wilson Pickett's and you've got the answer. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, uh, Meg Meg would say that really, wouldn't you? I mean, considering, you know, he essentially... Cribbed his whole vocal style, if not his actual voice from Don Covey. Quite. You know. <laughs> Who needs the real Don Covey when you've got me? Um. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty hilarious stuff. Moving forward to the LA Times, Richie York interviewing Jimi Hendrix in 69. And this is actually kind of sad, because if you read interviews with Jimi Hendrix from mid-late 68 onwards, you're reading, you're, you're hearing a man who's really quite depressed and who's finding life a, a real struggle. This, at the point, is criminally badly managed. I mean, say that Jimi mm. Hendrix is one of the worst managed artists in rock and roll history, the lovely Mike Jeffries. <laughs> And so he, he says things like, you know, when you first make it, the demands on you are very great. For some people, they're just too heavy. And our great friend Keith Altham was his publicist in 67 and so on. And everyone I knew who met him in 67 in London said he was just delightful. He yeah. was the happiest man on earth, you know. 
And then you start reading his interviews in 60, around 69, and this is an exhausted guy. I mean, he's just being flogged around. Worked to death. Worked to Two death. Two albums in one year. What one album. The, and and touring, touring. relentless. Touring. One of the biggest international touring yeah. artists at the time. Yeah, and absolutely. And did he see any of that money? No, apparently no. it's all in a Swiss bank account that only Mike Jeffries, who died in a plane crash, mm. had access to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. if anyone's got the code <laughs> yeah. to that. <laughs> he says, you, you've got to know much more than just the techniques of notes. You've got to know sounds and what goes between mm. the notes. I mean, he's oh, right. You, you know, exactly. You know, it's an interesting interview. It's a sad interview. Around 69, he started getting reports of this a man who's losing his temper a lot. He famously beat up a groupie in a hotel room once. Now, this is a man who liked women. Mm. You know, this is not Jimi Hendrix as... He was, you know, this is what he became as a result of just being going from festival to the Winterland to another hall, zigzagging across America, playing the same old bloody tunes, you know, and, and just it, it, it did him in. You mm. know. There's also a quote from that piece that I think you put on the Facebook page, uh, yeah. which I pulled out on the home page just because it seems timely that he's saying this is 69. There's a great need for harmony between man and earth. I think we're really screwing up that harmony by dumping garbage in the sea, air pollution and all that stuff. Well, that's all got a lot better, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but there we go, Jimmy, ecologist. This next one's Rob Partridge interviewing a man called Dave McCallier, who ran a label called Disco Demand, who were Pi Records' Northern Soul imprint. And they discovered that they could find these obscure records in America, repress them here, and sell thousands of copies to the North. So he says, the reaction from people at Roulette was very strange. Roulette being one of the labels. Oh, right? yeah. Morris Levy. Levy. Moe, I worked for him. He owned strawberries. Oh, right. I went to his estate a few times. Did and you? I had a few interactions with him. Oh, we have to do a separate oh, episode. Oh, my gosh. Can so you come back next week? <laughs> my first boss. <laughs> Says the reaction from people at Roulette was very strange. You guys want the B-sides to flop records? You're nuts. But the Casualiers have sold more rec- now sold more records in Britain than they ever did in the States. The Casualiers. <laughs> um, I love that. Nick Kent interviewing Elvis Costello in 78. Ooh. Now, 1978, Elvis Costello was in his pomp. This is model had just been released. Mm. And he'd already got his reputation as this really spiky, difficult individual. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Angry young bank clerk. And he says, you know, I don't necessarily think I'm going to become a nicer person or a more complete person as a consequence of all of this. I, mean, I may not be mature because I just may not fucking want to be. <laughs> I, don't know what I, I don't know what being grown up is, see. And I could never imagine a lot of people wanting this ugly geek in glasses ramming his songs down their throats. And that's exactly what I'm in it for. I'm in it to disrupt. <laughs> people's lives I mean it's, it's, it's great stuff Nick Kent had famously done one of the very first interviews in that the year before you mentioned Costello earlier mm-hmm. I'm always it, 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 given the context of this being Rock's Back Pages I'm always reminded of that great uh, David Lee Roth quote which is the reason why rock critics love Elvis Costello and hate Van Halen is because they all look like Elvis Costello <laughs> He was he was something very different. Really. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even some of the some of the punk bands were were not sort of ugly, quote unquote. And he he kind of made no attempt yeah. to sort of you know look cool or anything. Yeah. He was like this 
the, I mean, he, he had worked as a bank clerk, yes, hadn't yes, he? I mean, yes, in yes. America, I mean, you 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 mentioned him earlier. And yeah, he was quite underground, but when, we, yeah. when I started listening to him, it was his lyrics. Yeah. And, you know, great and, great and you know, memorable hooks and melodies, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. and very concise. And he did that thing called groove jamming where he'd have all these different songs. He was so prolific. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, so many songs on these records, like Get Happy and everything. Yeah. But his lyrics were really, really interesting, yeah. and they yeah. were just great. And you, it took you—I don't know—they just kept giving, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. kind of like and I mentioned those with his curmudgeonly kind of persona <laughs> being like you know Van Morrison too. Now, although their trajectories and what they sing about is very different, again, Van Morrison's yeah. music to me is a music that keeps on giving. I just keep finding more sure. and more. And Joni and Mitchell, I think yeah, people, yeah. Elvis was Elvis. It's funny, I'm not a lyrics person. Mm-hmm. You know, the world does something divided into people who listen to lyrics and those who don't. And I'm not sure I know the, the words to a single song, complete song, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not even Bridge Over Trouble Not even Bridge Over Trouble. Oh, my gosh. But, 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 but uh, I did always like Elvis. Also, I mean, I saw him quite a few times back around that time, mm-hmm. around 79, 80, 81. And I saw him at the Brighton Dome in, I think, 80. Not the Dome, uh, Brighton Centre. And it was one of the electrifyingly good rock and roll shows I ever saw. They were pretty great. You know, they came point. running on stage. They yeah. were lit from beneath, so their shadows were like German expressionist movies. Yeah. Cast up to the ceiling. Yeah. Were ramming into the first yeah. song. And like, bang, 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 bang. Mm. And then he did a really straight version of One Day I'll Fly Away, you know, the Randy Crawford song. They did it absolutely straight. And you could see all the audience, half the, and I'm sure I loved because I yeah. loved that yeah. record. And you see all the audience going, what's he doing this for? Sure, you know? sure. But of course it was a clue to the many different yes. directions yep. that he would yeah. he would go in. I mean, interesting the quote about well. him not, you know, I don't want to grow up or whatever yes. that quote was. I mean, actually, I think he, he did grow up. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, not necessarily to good effect. But. Well, <laughs> no, but I think, I think you know, yeah, yeah. I, I feel respect for Elvis, yeah, yeah. even though it's very hit or miss. I mean, mm. he will try on so many different hats, and sometimes it works. A lot of the time you think... Why are you putting that hat yeah. on? Yeah, uh, I like the country stuff that he was kind I, of I, just leaning into yeah. that. I like the that late album. 80s. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I like that album a lot. It's beautiful. Mm. Darling, there is one thing I must tell you, you must know. It's so hard to say words I feel. Next one is Gary Bushell goes to the Lewis Odeon to see the specials of Selector and a very early version of Texas Midnight Runners. Live. This is Gary Bushell, who's since developed his reputation as this fairly horrendous right-wing columnist for The Sun and The Star and so on and so forth. He's but just, a valued contributor to But a valued Rock contributor to Rockstar Nation. He says, the lovely bouncing... I have to just say that. <laughs> He says, the lovely bouncing Pauline, that's Pauline's selector, got uptight at the usual arm exercises of a small German movement turnout who didn't suss how ridiculous they looked, showing their enjoyment via Sieghiles to a mostly black band playing mostly black music. I mean, that was a real thing at the time. Those, those bands, the two-tone, the two-tone bands, bands, the skinhead, the, yeah. the skinhead following was a nightmare. I just find you know, that, that two years after this, Bushel was promoting oi music, which mm. was... Pretty ostentation, you know, notably right wing sort of skinhead. Did Dexys get much of a mention they, in this they, review? Because their first single was actually on Two Tone, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, even though pretty quickly they diverged yeah. from that movement. He's fairly rude about them as being sort of just kind of bad stacks repro, but but he didn't see much 
commercial future for them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's great. 1988, John Azelwood interviewing Was Not Was. Oh, uh, fantastic. For for number one magazine, which of course means it's kind of fairly flippant. Interestingly, David Was does most of the talking. Don really doesn't have much to say, but David Was was the lyricist for the band, Mm. I think, so it kind of makes sense. And he says, We really respect Bruce Willis and his burgeoning singing career. Actually, I've had up to here with him, especially when he advertises wine coolers and then tries to be rootsy. Should he wear a hat? Should he wear a? Should he wear a hat to cover his baldness? He should wear a noose. Could I just mention I love the Ayatollah and his wife, the Ayatollah, who, wor- who works in the Ayatollah booth? <laughs> that outfit, is, uh, that outfit he wears. Geez, I played golf with him in 1981 on our tyrant's tour. I was held hostage and had to clean his balls, which I did with a little detergent and gunpowder. Golf balls, of course. This is hysterical. Because Don Was would never say things like that. No. And Don Was probably just pulled his punches, didn't he? Because he sort of knew he wanted to be a big-name producer, which David Was never quite became. I don't think he ever desired to, He did produce a couple of... He produced the Ricky Lee Jones album. Oh, did he? Which album? It was called Pop Pop. Oh. And it was mm. a straight. It was sort of covers of of kind of torchy jazz songs. Okay. But he never seemed that interested in the way that Don. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Don was becoming mm, hugely yeah. successful. Absolutely, producer. and record exec. And yeah, record yeah, well, This interview would have been actually when I met him because we did a TV show. My band did a TV show in eighty eight, and was not was wrong. Yeah, and we were doing our terrible version of Crazy. And Don was came up to me afterwards and said, "I love all that Reggie Young parallel fourth shit you're playing, you know, which is pretty pretty good." They were great to hang around with in 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 the TV studio because when they were just doing run-throughs. They were just funny. They would do, yes. like, their guitar player would play a solo and do a somersault in the air while playing a solo. They had this woman percussionist who was just fantastic. And Sweet Pea Atkinson chilled me to bone. I kind of went, went up raving, oh, Sweet Pea, you know, I really love all this stuff. And I said, how are you doing? He said, it gets old and it gets tired. <laughs> and of course, they right. were on Z as well, Bye. so there's that, that sort of, you know, tenuous... Lydia Lunch connection because Queen of Siam was on Z. That's uh, a great fascinating label. label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible yeah. label. Stretched yeah. a nice. Uh, you knew Zilker. I knew Zilka a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Mother, Mr. Mothercare. Okay. Yeah, Mother Mr. Care Mothercare. Care. He's now like a squillionaire who I think made money out of oil in like Houston. And I mean, how how you get from Alan Vega to. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do Alan Vega at my kitchen table. That was one of the. Yeah. Now, he was an interesting man. Yeah, oh my wonderful. gosh, not what I expected yeah. whatsoever. He's such a nice, good sweetheart, nice wasn't he? Chris Needs, who we had in as guest a while back, was a great friend of his. And, and wrote yeah. the suicide. And, and every time I read about the suicide, everyone ends up falling a little bit in love with Alan Vega. Yeah. There was something really, really sweet about him. And his, Which is, you mean, was, when you kind of, sort of when you grew up looking, uh, listening to Frankie Teardrop, oh you kind of just assumed this guy was like psycho. <laughs> but he really wasn't. He yeah. was a gentle soul. And a great Elvis impersonator. <laughs> <laughs> great Elvis impersonator. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Anyway, lastly, from my stuff is May 98. Sean O'Hagan goes to Northern Ireland with you two. They're going to play a concert celebrating the imminent Good Friday Agreement or promoting the yes vote for it. And Sean O'Hagan's reporting to the Observer is 
just fabulous. He's such a good journalist. He says, I'm sure I hear Bono and David Trimble discussing the musical merits of Amazing Grace. Then Bono says something like, it's amazing that the evangelical tradition can throw up such disparate campaigners as Martin Luther King and Dr Paisley. David Trimble nods his head and he says, I never thought about it like that before, but I suppose it's pretty amazing, all right. Then Bono says, I often wonder if Ian Paisley reads his Bible that skips over all the bits about grace and forgiveness. David Trimble laughs and says, no, Ian's not very big on forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's a terrific report. A few weeks back, we put Sean O'Hagan's piece where he interviewed the undertones drummer about growing up during the Troubles and so on and so forth. Mm. Subsequent to that, I met Raymond Gorman, that that petrol emotion, Kev Hopper's New Year's Day thing, and we ended up talking at great length about that, about what it was like as a kind of Catholic schoolboy in Derry. Raymond Gorman went on the 68... He was seven. He went on the 68... Wow. March, which was broken up by the police of tear gas and all that sort of stuff, really? the, the Civil Rights March. It's just, you know, and Sean O'Hagan, he's from there, isn't he, I believe? He's certainly Irish. I he's don't know certainly whether, Northern Irish. Uh, right. He writes about all of that really, really well, you know, in, in, in a really kind of personal sort of way. Mm. So that's my lot. You got anything to talk about? Just mentioning a couple of things that I enjoyed. One was a piece about the late, great Vivian Stanshall, uh-huh. from 2004 is Rob Chapman writing about Vivian's first solo album and just paying tribute to his unruly comic genius. <laughs> That's enjoyable. There's a primal screen piece from 2000 by Dorian Linsky who was on the podcast last week which is as you might imagine from that era, it's it's you know essentially all about heroin. I interviewed her at that time as well. <laughs> yeah, did was you? This a, this, yeah, when uh, Screamadelica was released in yeah, Sire, yeah. and this, I was doing these syndicated radio shows, mm-hmm. and so everything was audio; it wasn't just transcribing. So here on America, I mean, we, we have to remember we had subtitles for Train Spotting. <laughs> <laughs> so we had all these glass regions, and I didn't have my own studio, so we didn't all have separate mics. It's one little mic. Right. I was up at you know seventy five Rockefeller, and I have these the band, the entire band, all leaning about 17 feet away from the microphone <laughs> and on the nod oh. with Glaswegian accents. Did you, that, have, sub- I, did you have subtitles? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I somehow produced the show, but then I interviewed them right after that. They were coming back up from Memphis and re- when they had been recording down oh, there. Give out, and it was don't a, give up. Yeah, and they were a different band. Bobby was just on fire. They oh. were completely happy. Mm-hmm. And then I've interviewed him again over the years, you know, for Six Music and then for another event. And the, he's a you know, lovely, lovely guy. Well, he, really he's like also him. taking part in this Roland Howard event. Oh, yeah, week. brilliant. So, yeah, so there was that. And Jasper has actually added a Teenage Jesus and Jerks, which is quite timely. And then the other thing I quite enjoyed was a piece about Them Crooked Vultures, which, as many of you will know, was a supergroup consisting of Josh Homme and Dave Grohl mm-hmm. and John Paul Jones. And it was this sort of... Sounds dr- ghastly. No, there was... It- <laughs> It was pretty good, actually. Okay, it okay. was pretty good. I mean, if you're a Queens fan, if you're a Zep fan... I'm a Queens fan. You know, I'm a Zep fan. Um, I, thought, <laughs> yeah. I didn't think it got the attention that it should okay. have done. Did you, you hear I that never, record I didn't talk? hear that, no. you know, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty decent record. I don't think those three guys could put together make a bad record. Mm. And while it's not Songs for the Deaf or Led Zeppelin IV, it's still <laughs> pretty a pretty kind of creditable okay. supergroup okay. effort. Yeah. 
And then lastly, there's a piece about Sister Rosetta Tharp oh, from yeah. 2018, oh, which、love. is, which is, I mean, it's a retrospective piece. Obviously,、mm-hmm. the good sister was long departed at this point, but it's a, it's a really nice piece. David Burke, the writer. Talks to people who knew her, yeah, yeah. and what an extraordinary kind of pioneer yeah, she was.、Absolutely. If for nothing else, just playing a white Gibson yes, SG、yes. in the fifties.、Um, actually, <laughs> as a guitar player, she's incredibly important because、mm. without her, you don't get Chuck Berry.、Mm. His style is straight out of Sister Rosetta Tharp. That dun, 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 dun.、Mm. I think Jasper's、mm. indicating that we should shut the fuck is up. It's Jasper <laughs> waving. Jasper's waving from across the room. Do we have a guest next week? We don't have a guest. So it's going to be the power trio. I think it? it's just the three, the, the three <laughs> of us. So next week is the week of Valentine's Day, and we've been talking about love saves the day.、Mm-hmm. We've been talking about the loft. We. Just absolutely enjoyed having you、Hugely. as our guest so much today.、Oh, Thank you so Thank much you. for, for coming in from Hackney, <laughs> all the way from Hackney. And you know, enjoy the 50th anniversary celebrations、I、in、will. New York and、We、wherever、will. else you're marking marking that event. And come back and see us sometime. And talk to us about Morris Levy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to go out with another clip from Lydia Lunch, where she talks about lyrics and music and so on and so forth. It's all good stuff. We'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. Well, the lyrics were the thing that started me creating in a musical format. I didn't know at seventeen, or wasn't interested when I started Teenage Jesus, to just get in the direct verbal route. Also, the lyrics dictated the music. You know, the the rhythm of the lyrics dictated the music, yeah, which is yeah, why it was、yeah. very percussive in the beginning. And so, the words were always the most important thing. I mean, it's. I mean, I still. You know, I had a. Harry Crews last year with Kim Gordon of Sonic、right. Youth. I mean, it's not like I stop music, but、That's、I、right. prefer to make music that isn't、uh, that cannot transport live to the stage, like Stink Fist, which yes was performed a few times. But I prefer making records that I just don't make records and tour them. It doesn't interest me. And certain musical formats I think work well to be played live, but I have a limited attention span. Harry Crews did 15 dates. We'll never play another one.、Right. Um, Spoken word, because you can alter, because you can be influenced by topical situations, it makes it more spontaneous. Because you can respond to people when they're acting in the fashion which they act when they're drunk and fucked up and looking for someone to beat off on. That was Lydia Lunch in conversation with Martin Aston in 1989, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Colleen Murphy. Like her Facebook page, Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and visit ClassicAlbumSundays.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at RocksBackPages.com. It's about the songs first and yeah, foremost. Yeah, yeah. It's always about the music yeah, first, yeah, rather yeah. than like, look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll yeah. never see me go like this. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, I will never do that. <laughs>